0: felt desire, that the Holy Spirit might rain down on us this morning. We need Him to touch us again. That is our prayer this morning. The world, well, the word of the Lord for us this morning will be read from the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13, or as is also known, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or as the Acts of the exalted Jesus who accomplishes His work on earth through his spirit who empowers his disciples. Would you open the book of Acts to chapter 13? If you are visiting us this morning, we want to remind you uh, or inform you that we are currently going through a series in the book of Acts. Uh, We are currently on chapter 13, and uh, if you did not bring your Bible this morning, we encourage you to find it uh, or grab the the Bible in the pew in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 921. And uh, we will be continuing uh, next week, Lord willing, uh, to read the second half of chapter 13. We are in Sermon 26, if I remember correctly, of this series. Here's the word of the Lord. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with a proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you, enemy of of all righteousness, fool of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop? making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. This is the word of God for us, for our hearts this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer, asking the Lord to guide us, speak to our hearts? O oh, Holy Spirit of God, you are among us. We ask that you would touch us as we have just heard the reading which you have inspired We pray that you would open our hearts, astonish us once again by the teaching that God had revealed to us through the scriptures. We pray that in the name of Christ, amen. Well, friends, last week we looked at this book of Acts at one major, perhaps last flashback of what was going on in the church in Jerusalem with its challenges, with its persecution, and how God rescued Peter miraculously in order to encourage believers in their faith that indeed God is in control of all things. God is able to rescue. God is able to triumph, even when it feels like the enemy, like the world, like the government is in control. God is able to rescue and triumph from the greatest of threats and from the greatest of difficulties. This was what we saw last week. And today, Luke brings us back into the life of the church in Antioch. Now, we first learned about this church in chapter 11. And by the way, I hope you keep your Bibles open. We'll, we'll look back to, to various parts of the book of Acts. But back in chapter 11, we heard about how this church was birthed. Jews were uh, people of Cyrene who happened to come to Antioch, started preaching the gospel, and their custom was that they would preach only to the Jews. But something weird, something different about the the people of Cyrene who moved to Antioch, they started speaking outside the box. They started speaking not just to the Jews but to the Gentiles also. And we read in chapter 11 that the hand of the Lord was upon these gospel proclaimers. And people who were non-Jews started believing the word of the Lord. And there were many of them, so many that the church in Jerusalem asked one of their members, one of their uh, leading members by the name of Barnabas to go to Antioch and check him out, to make sure that what was happening there was legit. So Barnabas comes and he sees the grace of God being poured upon the city Because so many of the Gentiles became believers and followers of Christ. So what does Barnabas do? He goes to look for Saul to get help because he realized there's there's need for teaching in the city. So Barnabas goes and gets Saul. Saul and Barnabas teach for about a whole year in the city. And the word of the Lord just grows this church in Antioch. And they do a love offering. Because they heard about the poverty that was that that hit Jerusalem and Judea, so they do a love offering, and they sent Paul and or Saul and Barnabas to take the love offering to the church in Jerusalem. That's the end of chapter 11. And then chapter 12, we we learned about what was going on in Jerusalem, the persecution, and the way the Lord released and rescued Peter. And then chapter 12 of, of this persecution chapter reminds us that Paul that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. When they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This was the end of chapter 12. And now we get to chapter 13. And in chapter 13, the first thing that strikes us is that they're no longer just two teachers and prophets. They're five. And there's, if you look at their names, there's, yes, there's Barnabas. And there's a guy by the name of Simon called Niger, most likely that was also a reference to the fact that he may have been a dark color, an African. Then Lucius of Cyrene. Then Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch. Now just think of that connection. A guy who was a lifelong friend with Herod, the Tetrarch. Herod, the Tetrarch, was the one who lived way earlier when John the Baptist used to live. Okay, so this was about 20 years ago at this point but Manaean was a lifelong friend with him that means that the gospel has reached even some of these folks who had a very strategic background politically inclined background the gospel reached them too and Manaean is now part of the leadership of the church in Antioch he is one of the, the five spiritual leaders and then Saul as well how did this church get here? How did the church in Antioch get to such a prominent place? And then, of course, we will see that they become ascending church, a church from, which, from among which the Lord has called out missionaries. And what we know is the, the first missionary journey in the book of Acts begins here. How did it start? It started from the church of Antioch. What happened to this church that grew so rapidly? that the Lord was doing such an amazing work in their midst, that they became a powerful mission agency, if you will, a mission center from which people were sent off to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Well, I would like to look this morning at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of this church. What was the, what was the Spirit doing in the life of this church? And what was the church doing so the Holy Spirit manifested in this way? Let's look at three things about the Holy Spirit as we look at the Spirit's leadership in missions in the church in Antioch. Here's the first thing that we see about the Spirit's work. The Spirit took the initiative. The Spirit took the initiative. Look at verse 2. The Spirit gave the command to the church in Antioch, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now notice the two prepositions, and no, this is not a grammar class. Prepositions means, the the word's for, in this case. Look at what the Spirit called these two brothers for. The church was called to set them apart, to set these two spiritual leaders apart, for two reasons, for the Spirit, and for the work the Spirit called them. In other words, the work that the Spirit will assign them cannot be done apart from being set apart for the Spirit. Not just for the work of the Spirit. Now, why is that important? It's a small detail, but I want to bring it out to you this morning because at times Christian workers, at times pastors, at times missionaries, at times you, the members of the congregation, feel like the work of the Spirit is more important Than the Spirit. At times, it feels like we are so busy, we're doing the work of the Lord that we don't have time for the Lord. Have you ever been there? And here, the Holy Spirit, in such a beautiful, minutiae way, reminds us and reminds the church in Antioch that as they will set these two brothers apart, they're first to be set apart for the Spirit and then for the work of the Spirit. Now, these two brothers have been already heavily involved in the work of the church. They have been heavily involved in serving this church in Antioch. They, their names are included among the five names of, of, in verse 1. And, of course, as we saw They were involved in actually serving this church for a whole year with teaching them the word of God. So in some way, we have to be cautious not to assume that this call is to set them apart for the ministry. This is not a setting them apart for the ministry. These brothers were already heavily involved in the life of this local church, in the life of leading this local church. Barnabas has already been sent by the church in Jerusalem to Antioch. And yet, they're set apart for a specific project, for a specific ministry that the church in Antioch had to release them to do. And this begins what we know as the first missionary journey in the book of Acts. Now, let me say this. This title, the first missionary journey, is really not a good title because it makes it feel like the church was never on a mission prior to this point. The people were doing gospel sharing already in various ways prior to this mission trip. And yet there's a sense in which this is the first organized, deliberate, intentional, going out in various parts and then coming back to the church of Antioch to give a report. But what's amazing about this so-called first missionary journey is that It's not the church's initiation. It's the Holy Spirit's initiation. Luke wants to tell us that it's the Spirit's initiative. It's not about the fact that finally the church is getting gone and becoming missions-minded. Have you you ever heard that about churches? And and, and rightly so. Some churches have lost their missions-mindedness, and they need to get back into being mission-minded That's so true. There's so many churches that have lost that. But here in Acts, the church of Antioch is not a church that that didn't have a missions focus and now they're they're finally becoming missions focused. No, not at all. We're simply told here that the Spirit took the initiation, the initiative, to lead this church to do above and beyond what they were already doing in Antioch. What does this mean for the life of the church that the Spirit takes the initiative in, in missions? Here's what it means. Here's a very practical application. While the church's mission is to take the Word of God and make it known to the ends of the earth, while this is a part of our mission, but a very important part of our mission, there is an even higher and more overarching calling that the church has. And that is To worship the Lord and seek His face. To worship the Lord and seek His face. It's only when we have this starting point, the worship of God, that the church is really fueled and directed correctly and will have an eternal impact in its mission. Otherwise, we will just be doing busy work or church propaganda or trying to propagate our denomination. And that is... A misguidance. Religious groups can be so focused on getting their mission across that they lose sight of their ultimate and most primary missions of all, namely to worship God and seek His face. It is only as the church keeps this God-centered focus that the mission of the church will be fueled with God's purposes and God's power. Now notice, when did the Spirit initiate this in the church of Antioch? When did it happen? Well, look at verse 2. There's an important phrase there. While the church was worshiping the Lord and fasting. That's why. Because of this phrase, I bring out to you this overarching, most primary of all purposes that the church has first and foremost, to worship the Lord and to seek His face. Now, the Church of Antioch was also practicing this spiritual discipline called fasting, which some, some today have, have lost, and we, we, we don't longer think much about it. And yet, the Church of Antioch used fasting, and fasting is often used in Scripture as a way to show very practically, very concretely, that our needs are not the most important needs. Our physical needs, even for food, which is often considered a basic need of human life, is not the most important need. So we are willing to forego that for a season, for a part of our day, or for a day, in order to show that we have a greater need. The need for God. The need for God to do something new, fresh in our hearts. The Church of Antioch was practicing this this spiritual discipline of fasting as a way of, of showing their dependence upon the Lord, of their resourcefulness, their lack of resources in themselves and needing the Lord to provide for them in everything they needed. So a church that set herself apart to worship the Lord in this way is now experiencing the Spirit's leading to set apart certain members of their leadership team so that the church might do the work of the gospel beyond Antioch. Friends, the truth that the Spirit took the initiative in this mission's work reminds the church that our greatest priority is to set ourselves apart for the Lord as a church. And in doing so, we ask for His Spirit to guide us in specific ways so that we might carry on His work With his power, in his ways, even in the specifics of the the details of the specifics. So that's the first truth that we see in this story. The Spirit took the initiative. The second truth we see is that the Spirit involved the church. The Spirit involved the church. It's not simply that the Spirit took the initiative with, with Saul and Barnabas, the Spirit also called the church to set them apart and to send them off. Notice in verse 2 that the Spirit's call was to be affirmed by the church. The Spirit was acting, I'm sorry, the church was acting on behalf of the Spirit to affirm this indeed was the the guidance of the Spirit and not simply their own ideas or initiatives. Now in our days we we see many parish church missionary agencies and and many of them do a great work. Many of them do the kind of work that, that individual churches are not able to do uh, by themselves or just as an individual church. But one of the traps, one of the dangers of parachurch agencies is that they can fall into this position that they're no longer church-centered. Missionaries are sent off to mission field without a confirmation from the, wor- from the local church. Or sometimes students from within a congregation, from within a church, feel a calling to to the ministry so they start signing up for seminary and they go to seminary and the church is supposed to affirm their calling. Now, There's a form that seminaries typically ask the church to to sign and and sometimes churches just think of that very quickly and not give much thought to it. That's a very important part. The church is called to affirm those whom the Spirit is calling to serve Him In missions. Notice the Spirit's call not just Saul and Barnabas, but the Spirit is calling the church to do something about the calling of Saul and Barnabas. What does the church do in this leading that the Spirit had upon their lives? Well, look at verse 3. What is the church doing when they hear that the Spirit is calling Saul and Barnabas to this ministry? Look at verse 3. What are they doing? Then after fasting and praying. After fasting and praying. Now notice that even though the church had been praying prior to the Spirit's command, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Then the church gets a news somehow. We don't know exactly how. We don't know it was a prophetic word that just was uttered during the church service. Or that somehow the Lord put it in the hearts of Saul and Barnabas to go, and that was the way the Spirit spoke. We don't know how the Spirit spoke. But after the Spirit made it clear that he has this calling for Saul and Barnabas, and the Spirit made that calling clear to the church, what does the church do? They don't just send him off. They do more praying and fasting. Now, here's another interesting thing. I could understand if the church did more praying and fasting about some members that that weren't really well-known and haven't really proved their calling in the local church. But Saul and Barnabas, they had been two of the five leaders of this church. Their calling to ministry and their giftedness to ministry had already been known and proved. And yet the church still took time to pray and fast before sending them off oh well, friends the community in which a spirit leads in this kind of way cannot overdo the act of praying and fasting what a great diligence this church took in affirming the leading of the spirit of these two new missionaries now turn to chapter 14 verse 23 we'll see this phrase, praying and fasting, appear again in another important part in the life of the church. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Did you see that? Now in the life of local churches that were newly planted at the end of this missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, appoint elders, appoint spiritual leaders for the church, but that appointment happens with prayer and fasting. Do you see how careful the church is, is working through this act of who's called to serve with the gospel, whether in a local church setting like in chapter 14 or whether in a missionary setting like in chapter 13 as the church is sending off Saul and Barnabas? The church is committed prayer, and fasting as a way to commit these people to the Lord. Oh, friends, that's how the Spirit engages the church. It engages us in in continuing to seek Him through prayer and fasting. And then another thing that the church does as a way of being engaged by the Spirit is that the church lays hands on them before they send them off. Now, this is not an ordination service as sometimes we think of being called to ministry and being ordained for the ministry, it's more like a commissioning service. We will see Paul and Barnabas come back and give a missions report at the end of chapter 14. Um, this act, we'll, we'll see that, that um, this act of laying of hands in chapter 14 is described as commending them to the grace of God. Chapter 14, verses 26. What the church of Antioch did in, in laying hands on them was they commended them to the grace of God. They entrusted them the grace of God. So it's a commissioning service. It's a a commissioning act. This was the way the church of Antioch was engaged by the Spirit to get involved in the sending of these two missionary uh, callings, Saul and Barnabas. So the church sent them off. Bye-bye. Go. That's how verse 3 ends. But then we get to verse 4. And we read an interesting phrase. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Now, human logic, which one is it? Were they sent out by the church or by the Holy Spirit? Human logic wants us to make, to choose between one or the other. Reality, it's both both. But there's a beautiful thing here that we see in, in both of these being upheld together. Namely, remember the, church took the, the Spirit took the initiative and got the church to get involved in sending these missionaries off. But then we're reminded that in sending them off, behind that sending, the Spirit of God was sending them. So that it's not just that the church does what the Spirit tells the church to do, but we're now affirmed that the Spirit does what the church is doing. It's working together. What the church does on earth is what the Spirit does in heaven. It's not either or. It's both. God has chosen to work through means, through human means. What that means for us is that We see a beautiful picture between the ministry of the church and the ministry of the Spirit working together. One works through the other. The Spirit works through the church. And the church works because of the Spirit. We should not do anything without the Spirit's guidance and assistance. And we should do everything that the Spirit calls us to do as a church. This close link between the Spirit and the church working so well together brings a great challenge to a particular group of people today. Have you ever heard people who distrust organized religion? They want to have nothing to do with a church. They think they're Christians. They think they follow some sort of religious experience, but they will have nothing to do with a local church. And and, and some might simply call it they, they just distrust organized religion. We had someone come in here a few, we- few years ago who, who came with that kind of a, uh, obstacle in his own heart and mind. What's interesting here is that the Spirit chooses to work through the church. And when a church leads or lives this kind of life of worshiping God as a primary focus and being always looking for the Spirit's guidance and ready to obey the Spirit's guidance, that kind of church will be the means by which the Spirit works on earth. So what the church does, the Spirit does also. So how can people today just put this blanket, they distrust organized religion, when the Spirit of God works through people gathered on earth who worship His holy name on a regular basis, on a consistent basis. Here the Spirit's involvement of the church shows how important the role of the church is in missions, how important the role of the church is in what the Spirit is doing around the earth, around our globe. By the way, we see at the end of chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas come back to the church of Antioch to give a report of what God has done through them to open a door of faith for the Gentiles. So bottom line here is, it's not just that the Spirit takes the initiative. We see that. We saw that first. But then the Spirit engages the church so that a church submitted to the Word of God and to the leadership of the Spirit will be the means by which the Spirit will do its work. But then we see a third point. Once Saul and Barnabas are sent off and they start their missionary journey, Luke chooses to tell us about the first conversion experience in this first missionary journey, if you will. We see here a third point that the Spirit revealed people's true convictions. The Spirit revealed people's true conditions. It's a Spirit working through the work of Saul and Barnabas. Now, there are several emphases that that Luke brings out of this conversion story. This proconsul, even though he he had uh, an an initial interest to hear about the word of the Lord, he had a man around him who was trying, working hard to persuade him away from trusting in Christ. And we're told a very interesting detail that he was a Jewish magician. Now, that's a big deal. He was not just a magician. He was a Jewish magician, which means in the Old Testament, God had given incredibly clear details and commandments how the Jews should not be at all involved in the slightest... Activity with magic. And here's a Jewish magician. What's worse about him, or irony about him, his name is Bar Jesus. Now, the Hebrew word for Bar means son. So his name was literally translated Son of Jesus. Now, don't think of Jesus necessarily as Jesus, it could mean Bar of Joshua. Right, Hebrew name, Jesus Joshua, which literally means son of salvation. That was his name. Until Saul encounters him. And filled by the Holy Spirit, Saul gives him, or the Holy Spirit through Saul identifies his true condition. He's not a son of salvation. Look at verse 9. But also Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looking intently at him and said, You, son of the devil, you, an enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Three hard words. And they're spoken by the Apostle Paul. And his words come because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit wanted to speak to this magician, his true condition, who he truly was, an enemy of righteousness, son of the devil. To oppose others in receiving the faith, to oppose others in believing the word of the Lord, this is the work of the devil. This is the work of the devil. This magician was making crooked the straight paths of the Lord before this proconsul. This is what the devil does. It makes people have the impression that the paths of the Lord are crooked when in reality they are straight. Whenever the Lord brings His Holy Spirit to us, to bring us that illumination, to astonish us with His truth, one of the first things we come to recognize is that that which we thought were crooked before are actually straight. We come to know that that which was dark and seemed, why would anyone want to follow those paths of the Lord, actually become light and beautiful. And we come to that point in our lives in which we realize How can anyone not follow these straight paths? But here's this magician. Here's this son who is being worked by the devil, who is doing the work of the devil and trying to persuade people away from seeing the paths of the Lord as straight. So this man who is able to do many tricks. The Lord enables Paul to blind him for a season to show him that even though his magician, mag- mag- magical powers, even though the, the powers to which he appealed to to do his tricks, those are unable to save him from this blindness. He had to go around and get help. Isn't it amazing how the Lord, part of bringing this man, part of confronting his his Source of, of, of darkness is to actually show him how unable he is even to walk by this blindness. Remember who else was blinded by the Lord while the Lord appeared to him to show his majesty and power? This very apostle Paul. Now we don't know what happened to this magician. The fact that this blindness was temporary, most commentators think it was actually the, the Lord's kindness. To bring him to a point of realizing his inability, his wrong his darkness, in order that he might turn to the Lord. But we don't know if he ever turned to the Lord. We don't know. But that's not what Luke is interested to tell us. Luke's attention is actually to tell us what happened to the proconsul. And look at what happened to him, verse 12. That the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Friends, there's something absolutely astonishing about this conclusion. You know what's so astonishing about this conclusion? It's astonishing what astonished the proconsul. Okay, let me try again. It's surprising what astonished the proconsul. It wasn't the miracle. Did you see what, what it says? Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred... Why did he believe? Why did he believe? For he was astonished, not at the miracle, but at the teaching of the Lord. That's the astonishing thing about this astonishment, that what astonished this proconsul was the teaching of the Lord. Now, the Lord may use miracles as he chooses. It's not up to us to demand them or to put conditions on the Lord to do it. He may choose to use miracles whenever he wants to. But faith doesn't come by seeing miracles. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 9. And here we see that for this proconsul saving faith took heart in him, took root in his heart when he heard the word of the Lord. Oh, friends, this is saving faith. It involves a hearing. It involves an acceptance that this indeed is the word of the Lord. But then it involves a submission, the kind of thing like, oh, my goodness, this is it. This is the word of the Lord. This is what it demands. This is what it promises. This is what it offers. It's it's these parts of not just a hearing, a physical hearing, an intellectual acknowledgement, but that kind of heart astonishment. It's like when your heart stops and like, Oh, my goodness. This is what the Lord requires. This is what the Lord has done. Oh, my goodness. Those of you who are Christians, do you ever remember that moment in your life when you first understood the gospel and you first believed it because you heard it in its true power and you were astonished? And you could not do anything but turn to the Lord. You remember? When it made sense, and when it felt, it felt like it gripped you, it's that astonishment that the Word of the Lord is true and powerful to save you and I and sinners like us. That's the word of the gospel. That's the word of the Lord that produces astonishment. True faith is not just an acceptance of some religious truth as if it's trivial truth. Saving faith is produced when we come to realize that a holy God would pursue sinners who deserve His judgment. And yet His holy God pursued us in love instead of judgment by giving us His holy Son, His only Son, to die as a penalty for our rebellion so that those who hear the truth of Christ's death and His resurrection on our behalf might turn to Him and those who turn to the Lord might receive eternal life. It's this truth of the gospel that when we heard it, that when we proclaim it and others hear it afresh, astonishes us that God, through the death of His Son, was able to bring sinners into His presence. There's no other way for God to bring sinners into His presence except through Christ, His Son. Oh, friend, if you are not a Christian, or perhaps you thought you were, but you've never been astonished by the truth of this gospel, and the Lord is speaking to you right now, you'd like to know more about it, I pray that you would respond to Him. I pray that you would believe in what you are hearing, because this is the word of the Lord. I don't need to argue with you about it. All I'm here is to proclaim to you that which Christ has commissioned us, the church, to proclaim. that The word of the Lord is powerful to save. If you'd like to know more about this and would like to know how to respond to him, I would love to talk to you as soon as the service is over. Friend, if you're not a Christian, that's what the truth of God does to us it astonishes us. Don't think that this astonishment is only for people who are less intellectual than you are. Paul told us that this proconsul was a man not just of authority and power, but he was a man of intelligence. But despite his power, despite his, his, his high profile, despite his intelligence, when he heard the word of the Lord, it astonished him. Now I ask you, dear friends, why is it that the proconsul was astonished and the magician wasn't? Where does this kind of hearing of the word come from that it makes some continue to sway away, to stay away, even try to turn others away? And yet, in others, there's another kind of hearing, the kind of hearing that brings that astonishment. Where does that hearing come from? It comes from God. God gives it. The Holy Spirit gives it. This kind of saving faith is a gift of God. So those who hear this message, all we can do to them, we can plead with them to turn and believe, but at the end of the day, our confidence is not in our persuasion. Our confidence is in the Spirit of God who chose people their true condition, and makes them believe and gives them the kind of hearing that makes them turn to the Lord and they are saved. Friends, I pray that we as a church would put our confidence in the Spirit of God, the Spirit who takes the initiative to get us on mission, the Spirit who engages a church to do His work so that the work of the Spirit of God on earth is done by the church of God, the Spirit who works in such a way that He shows people their true conditions, the Spirit who brings a kind of hearing that makes people be astonished. Church and friends, I have another prayer for our church. I pray that those of us who have been once astonished by the Word of God will never lose the wonder of that astonishment, will never lose the wonder of the teachings of the Lord of being engaged by the Lord, so that every time we gather in this place, we gather with that anticipation, with that heart primed with being astonished of the word of the Lord and wanting to hear it again and again and again. Let's pray for that to happen. And when we do that, the Spirit of God will continue to lead His church on His mission. Would you pray with me? O mighty Spirit of God, mighty Holy Spirit who live among us, who dwell among your people, we pray, we pray that once again you would bring to our attention the beauty of Christ, the beauty of what Christ has taught us, the beauty of what Christ has done for us to save us from our sin, to save us from our own imprisonment, our own enslavement to rebellion, to our own ways, to our selfish ways. O oh, Spirit of God, we pray that once again your people would be astonished by the presence of Christ, by the teachings of Christ, by the salvation of Christ, by how treasuring Christ is for us. And Lord, We pray that by your Spirit, when your church is primed with this astonishment, that your church would be sensitive to the leading that you give us to carry out the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray that you would do that today in all of our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Would you please stand and let us sing the gospel song. Let us sing the astonishing words of the gospel. All I have is Christ.